Welcome to My American Melting Pot, the podcast where we have conversations about pop culture, parenting, and identity politics, all from a multicultural perspective. I'm your host, Lori Tharps. I'm an author, a journalist, a mother of three, and an all-around diversity diva. I'm really glad you're here because we have a lot to talk about. This is episode two of My American Melting Pot, and we're going to be talking about racist technology. That's right. I said it. Racist technology. I'm not talking about the lack of diversity in the tech industry, and I'm not speaking about the lack of access many communities of color are faced with when it comes to technology. I'm actually talking about technology that in and of itself is racist. I know it sounds crazy. Joining me in conversation to help me understand how technology can be racist and what that means for society is Meredith Broussard. Meredith is an assistant professor at the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute at New York University, and she is the author of the new book, Artificial Unintelligence, How Computers Misunderstand the World. I have a lot of questions for Meredith, but first, a melting pot minute. Today's Melting Pot Minute is brought to you by whitewashing. Whitewashing, the convenient way to eliminate people of color from the past, present, and future. Hello, Melting Pot community. So, there are only two and a half weeks until Christmas, and I was wondering, why in the United States does a big fat white man in a red suit deliver presents on Christmas? Why isn't it the three wise men? So much of how we celebrate Christmas is a hodgepodge of customs and traditions from a variety of cultures from the pagans to the Dutch. The figure of Santa Claus is actually an amalgamation of a Turkish monk, a Dutch tradition, and Washington Irving's literary imagination. Not to mention the need for retail stores to create yet another reason for people to empty their bank accounts at the end of the year. Meanwhile, in Spain, Latin America, and many Caribbean countries, for hundreds of years, Christmas gifts have been delivered by Gaspar, Baltasar, and Melchior a.k.a. the three wise men, the same three wise men who reportedly brought the baby Jesus gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh soon after his birth. Now, if we're going to go with the idea of celebrating Christmas as the birth of Jesus, which many Americans do, why don't we maintain some continuity with that storyline and let the wise men bring the gifts? Why invent a big white man to take over the job of three wise men of color? Oh, maybe that's why. Biblical scholars speculate that the wise men were from the Middle East and Africa. So perhaps that's why Americans didn't want them sneaking into their houses on Christmas Eve, even if they were just going to deliver presents to the children. Now, I'm not saying that racism and xenophobia are the reasons that the three wise men didn't make it in America, but I am saying that I think we should really reconsider incorporating them into our holiday merrymaking beyond the token Christmas carol. I mean, think about the benefits. One, if we replaced Santa with the three wise men, men of all racial backgrounds could get work during the holiday season playing the part of the three wise men for Christmas parties and standing on street corners and they wouldn't get harassed by the Megyn Kellys of the world who believe Santa has to be a white man. Two, 
multicultural wise men instead of Santa would mean children of all racial and ethnic backgrounds would see their culture reflected in what is arguably the biggest holiday celebration in the country. Think about that kid whose parents are immigrants from Syria. If his dad could play like a big part at the school pageant being Gaspar, he would be a star. He'd be an integral part of the celebration. Representation matters. You don't get a pass just because it's Christmas. Finally, not everybody wants their kids taking gifts from white men. This country we live in is so diverse, and many folks want their holidays to reflect that diversity. Given all of the multicultural elements naturally baked into the Christmas story, not to mention all of the borrowing of bits and pieces of other cultural traditions we've already done around Christmas, I don't think it's too much to ask to incorporate the three kings into our merrymaking. What about you? I'd love to hear what you think about the three wise men versus Santa when it comes to holiday gift giving in this country. Let me know what you think on the My American Melting Pot Facebook page or leave me a comment on myamericanmeltingpot.com. This has been a Melting Pot Minute. Now, let's get to talking about racist technology with Meredith Broussard. Thank you for joining us on My American Melting Pot, Meredith Broussard. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So Melting Pot community, I want you to know that before I had a conversation with Meredith earlier this year, this was the summer of 2018, I had never heard of, much less thought about, racist technology. But sure enough, after our brief conversation, I did what anybody who hears about something new does. I Googled it. And the Google gave me 93 million results for racist technology. So the two items that kept getting referenced in the articles I was looking at were an automatic soap dispenser and a camera. So this soap dispenser, the kind that you stick your hand under and the soap comes out automatically, that's powered by infrared technology. It would give the person with white skin or a white person soap, but when a black person put their hand under the soap dispenser, nothing would happen. So that was the racist soap dispenser. And then there was this camera that people kept talking about. It was the Nikon Coolpix S630. This was a camera that was released in 2009, and it was touted as this camera that would use facial recognition technology to tell the photographer when their subjects were blinking, but the camera would see Asian people as blinking all the time and would not take their picture. It would literally give the photographer a message, is someone blinking? So these cameras were obviously racist and these soap dispensers were obviously racist. But Meredith, is this what we mean when we talk about racist technology, cameras and soap dispensers, or is there more to this concept of racist technology? Well, I think in order to uh, talk about racist technology, we need to talk about the way that technology is made and we need to talk about the people making technology. So one of the things that I talk about in my new book, Artificial Unintelligence, How Computers Misunderstand the World, is this idea of techno-chauvinism, which is the idea that technology is always the highest and best solution. And when you look at who's telling us this, it's an awfully homogeneous group of affluent white men, generally. And so when you look at the people who are making technology, 
and you think about those individuals' blind spots, it becomes very clear why there are errors in technology that end up having the effect of being racist, right? So there aren't that many people of color making visual recognition technology. So the predominantly white men who are making these technologies are testing on themselves. They're testing on their friends. They're testing on their community. And they're like, oh, it works. And they're not thinking, oh, I need to test this image recognition system on people who have all different shades of skin color, right? They're not thinking, oh, I need to test this technology on people of different genders. They're not thinking, I need to test this technology on people with different accents. Or, you know, is this technology going to work for somebody who's wearing a headscarf? Or, you know, can you not access it if you're using a headscarf? Uh, These kinds of things. So we need more diverse teams making technology in order to have technology that works for everybody. So the technology is not necessarily racist. It's the people who are making it that's racist. Is that fair to say? Or can we actually say that the technology itself is racist? I mean, I'm comfortable saying the technology is racist. Uh, that's fine by me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> If anybody is, is feeling like they need permission to say technology is racist, like I will, I will happily grant that permission. But I think one of the things that is important to say, though, is that I don't really think that the people who make technology are going around saying, I am going to oppress other people. I mean, I don't think I could get up in the morning if I believed that there was a racist conspiracy among all tech companies. Like, some of it is intentional, obviously, but also a lot of it is unintentional. So people embed their own biases in technology, and a lot of bias is unconscious. And so if you don't know that you have this bias, you can't work against it in creating technology. Yeah. There was an article, it was written in, I think it was 2012 in Time magazine. John McOrder wrote this op-ed piece basically saying that machines cannot themselves be racists. Even equipped with artificial intelligence, they have neither brain nor intention. The question worth asking is whether the people who created a given technology qualify as racist. And then he goes on to say kind of what you were just saying, that he doesn't believe that people in Silicon Valley are, you know, part of some racist conspiracy trying to hurt everybody with their, you know, or bring the world down with their racist technology. But he says imputing bigotry to a computer program is like imputing a spirit to a tree. Now, I actually take issue with that because a lot of people do believe trees have spirits, um, depending what your belief system is. But whether or not people are intentionally programming or making racist technology or, you know, whether it's intentional or not, the effect and the impact obviously is dangerous, I think. But is there more to, um, are there more dangerous impacts that this technology, if it is in fact racist, can have, particularly on people of color? I mean, is there more to it than just, you know, soap and photographs? So I actually talk about the racist soap dispenser an awful lot because I feel like it's a really easy way to understand the subtle ways that bias plays out for people of different skin colors when we're talking about kind of ordinary technology in the world. But something little 
like a soap dispenser matters because the way the technology works is it's approximately the same ingredients in all technology, right? So like the image recognition technology that goes into a soap dispenser is analogous to the same technology that's used by something like a self-driving car, right? So self-driving cars are not necessarily going to recognize people with darker skin if soap dispensers don't recognize people with darker skin. You also have things like video game systems, like the Microsoft Kinect, that is uh, was one of the first video game systems that would work based on sensing your position, right? So you could play this video game by standing in front of the sensor and and kind of waving your hands to interact with it. And we have lots of newer generation games that work like this too. But those games do not work as well on people with darker skin or people with darker skin in low light conditions. And we've known this for years. And no, something like a video game, it doesn't seem like a very big deal. But again, when you put that into a self-driving car, which is a two-ton killing machine, I'm really worried about the idea that self-driving cars are going to be out there with image recognition and image sensing technology that does not recognize people of color. And there's going to be a disparate impact in terms of who gets killed. I'm literally trying to wrap my mind around that. Now, the first thing that comes to my mind, um, I wrote a book recently called Same Family, Different Colors, where I talk about colorism a lot. And so what's coming to my mind is that maybe we shouldn't be calling it racist technology. We should be calling it colorist technology. It's not even race. We're really looking at how the computer sees human differentiation. And the further you are away from European features, the less you're likely to be seen. Is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, I think we're talking about like we're talking about a lot of things simultaneously, right? Like it's a very complicated conversation because race is obviously a social construct, but notions of race are baked into the technology systems that people mm-hmm. create because people are coming out of a social context, right? Mm-hmm. And then we have teams of people who are making say a self-driving car system, but they don't have diverse teams so they're not thinking about the experience of people who have different skin colors than them, right? Because it's very hard to solve technical problems. And I encounter this a lot as a programmer. Like, I get so focused on solving the technical problem that it's really hard to think about the social dimensions of the problem. It's really hard to empathize with the the hypothetical person who's going to be using your product. Now, I say it's hard. It's not impossible, It absolutely can be done, but it takes extra time and effort. And most technology companies, when they're focusing on move fast and break things, they're not building in that necessary time for reflection, for testing. And they're also not taking the time to make sure that their teams are diverse. So is this self-driving car thing, are people figuring that out or are people just ignoring that? I think that when it comes to technology, for a long time, we've had this idea that problems can be reduced to a single pain point, 
that all you have to do is say, oh, this is a problem, and then magically it gets fixed. Mm. So I would push back against reducing things to a single problem. So the problems that are in self-driving cars, it's really not as simple as oh, we're just going to make sure that the image recognition systems recognize all skin tones and then it'll be fine, right? So like every single system inside a self-driving car and in the entire transportation infrastructure has the same kinds of problems. So it's not just about recognizing one problem here and there and playing whack-a-mole. We're not quashing bugs here. We're talking about people's lives. So the self-driving car image recognition problems are not the only problem with self-driving cars. It's not like we can just fix that problem and self-driving cars are going to like magically work and are going to be pro-social. It goes deeper than that. So for example, like we can uh, go over to talking about the issues of employment, like what happens when you get rid of the millions of jobs that are held by taxi drivers and bus drivers? What happens to the social environment inside the car when you take away the driver? It's not just about this one thing. It's about everything and how the problems of racism and sexism and inequality multiply and are reproduced in every technological system in ways you haven't even thought of. So I think, again, that what you're saying then is that these problems, like this idea of racist technology isn't a single issue. It's not, it can't see dark skin. All right, show it some dark skin so it can see that. I mean, from a technological perspective, like from a granular level, it's not even that simple in terms of how you would fix it. It's also the other implications of what happens, that there's so much more to it than just fixing some code. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. If it were just as simple as fixing some code, then we would just go do it and it would be fine. But it's not that simple. You know, I love this line in your book. You write, computer systems are proxies for the people who make them. Because there has historically been very little diversity among the people who make computer systems, There are beliefs embedded in the design and concept of technological systems that we would be better off rethinking and revising. So you write that in artificial intelligence and you just told us that self-driving cars aren't going to be able to actually see people with darker skin. And so as a black woman, I'm afraid. Like, I feel that If this is where we are, that we have this problem that's baked into technology, that we don't have diverse teams working on these issues, what happens then? Are we waiting for a self-driving car to run over a person of color or multiple people of color? What is the equivalent Black Lives Matter protest for technology? Like what has to happen people talking about this in the tech industries or are you like a one-man band right now? Well, the the very few women of color who are in the uh, tech industry, like we are definitely talking about it. And 
Honestly, I think you should be afraid. I think everybody should be afraid. But I think that that we should not let that fear paralyze us. I think we should let that fear kind of spur us into action. So I'll go back to techno-chauvinism. I think the first thing that we can do is we can fight back against the idea of techno-chauvinism. So next time you find yourself assuming that, oh, this thing could be fixed by technology, just stop for a second and challenge that assumption. Like, is the technical solution going to be just for everybody who needs to use it? And if not, what kinds of layers can you add in order to make it just? And is the appropriate solution always using technology? It's not. So in one of the chapters, I talk about using technology in schools. And for a long time, people had this idea that, oh, we'll just replace paper books with iPads or with electronic books or with laptops, and it'll just be better. Well, actually, it turns out that it's far more expensive and time-consuming and not as efficient educationally. So paper books, you know, the form that we've had for many years, the codex, is in many cases the most efficient method for economically delivering information, right? So it's really about using the right tool for the task. So if we stop saying, oh, we should absolutely use technology for everything, we kind of slow down and we say, what's the right tool for the task? That's a really good place to start. And I think that that's always obviously a good thing to do is to stop and ask questions. But I feel like technology is so intimidating, right? And personally, I feel intimidated by technology in the sense that I'm always the one who assumes the technology is smarter than me. And if I'm making a mistake, it's my fault. Or if the technology is not working, I should say. If the technology is not working, it's my fault. I'm doing it wrong. I don't understand. And I feel like particularly for people of color um, who aren't necessarily represented a lot in tech industry, and tech fields, are we going to be asking questions like, how do we know when we might be faced with racist technology? How do you know that the questions you're asking are not because of your own ignorance and, and actually are because perhaps this technology was not created for you or with you in mind? Well, I really want people who read the book to feel empowered about technology because you're, you're absolutely not alone in feeling intimidated by the technology, and that's deliberate. Like the people who who make these systems want you to feel intimidated because then you'll buy more things, right? Like that's capitalism 101. <laughs> um, it's like the beauty industry, right? Like they want you to feel insecure about your looks so you'll buy more products. Like actually you're smart enough already and you're beautiful enough already. So... Like, what I would say to anybody is that as a human being, you are so much smarter than the computer. And so anytime you are faced with this feeling of, oh, I must be stupid because I don't understand the thing on the computer, I would encourage you to think differently. I would encourage you to think, oh, the problem is not me. The problem is the design. Like, this was designed by somebody who was not thinking about my unique needs. This was designed by somebody who was not thinking about my experience and did not have a sufficient amount of empathy or did not have a sufficient amount of time or was not sufficiently talented to make this thing work the way that it ought to. What do we do about those bigger issues? And recently it was 
in October of 2018. And um, there were stories in the news about Amazon having an algorithm that was sexist. They were using an algorithm for um, reading their resumes and trying to pick top candidates. And it turned out that the algorithm was ignoring women or eliminating women from the prospects. Um, you know, these type of situations where we might even be at the table to ask a question, right? We might not even be in the room when people are creating the next self-driving car or the next algorithm that's going to, you know, I don't know, select our president, whatever it might be. How do we make noise or how do we get that kind of truly embedded racism out of our technology? What does that look like in terms of, you know, fixing that problem? I think we can speak up and we can speak out. You know, this is a democracy. Like, we do get a say. And we can choose not to go forward with technologies that are not bringing us toward a better world. So I think this is especially true with self-driving cars. Um, Self-driving cars are not legal in most places, and they don't have to be legal. So they are legal in California, in Arizona, and in Pennsylvania, in part because there are tech companies headquartered there who lobbied lawmakers to get the laws changed in their favor, right? So we can lobby lawmakers to get the laws changed back. We can lobby lawmakers who are trying to make it legal to operate autonomous vehicles, and we can say no. So like that's one thing that we can do. Technological progress is not inevitable. It doesn't have to be that we just like lay down and let a particular kind of technological progress happen to us. We have a voice. Of course, we want to go forward with technology. Of course, we want to work toward a better world. But we're at a point, you know, 20 odd years into the digital revolution now, where we can start asking, hey, is this actually making us the world that we want? I think about it as a conflict between the world as it is versus the world as it should be. So what AI systems right now do is they replicate the world as it is. And unless they are more creatively designed by, again, more diverse teams, they won't get us to the world as it should be. So the Amazon system you referred to is a really good example of this. Amazon built an AI system that would sort through resumes and pull out what it thought were the top applicants. But the way that this kind of AI system works is you feed it data based on your existing employees, and it picks out the keywords and the you know, educational background slash characteristics of your successful employees so far. And then It says, all right, I'm going to look for those characteristics in the pool of resumes. Well, if you look at the upper echelon of management in every company in the United States, it looks pretty homogeneous, right? Like, what does it look like in every corporation? White men. Exactly. Who are mostly Ivy League educated. So if you build a system that looks at the world as it is and then goes on and replicates that, it's not surprising that it acts in a sexist manner because there is structural sexism, there is structural racism in the world. So what you need to do if you're going to build technology that is going to make a better world is you need to 
actively work against that. So there's a company started by a woman named Laura Gomez. It's called Atapika. And what it does is it uses AI to predict the race and gender of applicants based on their resumes. And then it uses that prediction to build you a diverse applicant pool. So instead of just using an AI that would replicate existing power structures, it says, okay, we actually want a diverse applicant pool when we're looking at candidates. And so we want the computer to assemble that for us. So I think that's a better approach. How do people know if technology is racist? I mean, like if I'm going back to the soap dispenser or the camera, I feel that a lot of times people just wouldn't assume that technology could be racist. We can definitely assume that discrimination is the default in every computational system because discrimination is the default in the world. So we can design systems that that push back against discrimination. We can design systems that are more inclusive, but we have to intentionally do that. So what is the kind of culture in the tech field itself around this issue? Are people besides you and other women of color sounding the alarm? I think that there's definitely an emerging conversation about a more nuanced view of technology. And there's an emerging conversation about social justice and the values we embed in our technology. Interestingly, most of the people whose work is, I think, most interesting right now in this space are women. I would urge people to read Sophia Noble's book, Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. Right, So this is about the way that Google and other search engines are racist in their search results. For example, if you search for professional hairstyles, you get only images of white women. If you search for unprofessional hairstyles, you get only images of black women. Or if you search white girls, you get, you know, happy pictures of young people, you know, of white girls. And if you search black girls, you get porn. Right. So again, it goes back to the issue of diverse teams. Like we need more representation in the room when people are making these technologies so that the same tired narratives don't get baked into the technology. When we talk about racist technology, we're talking about the racism that is embedded in our society, period. And it would actually probably be silly to expect that technology wouldn't have the same bias that the rest of society has, right? But I think that what's just something that we as consumers of technology don't think about is that technology is simply a product of the humans who made it. And I would assume then if there is something wrong with some technology and it points to the programmer's own bias, that there might be resistance to admitting it. I think it's really hard for programmers to accept that technology might have disparate impact, in part because of techno-chauvinism. 
there's been this this enormous marketing campaign, really, since the beginning of the digital era that was designed to make us all believe that technology is better and more objective than people. You hear people say this all the time, like, oh, we're going to use the computer to make this decision because it's going to be more neutral. It's going to be more objective. If we do this with math, then we're going to get beyond all of these pesky social concerns. And that's simply not true. Like, there is no way to build technology to get us beyond social problems. When we're talking about race in technology, we are talking about race in society. I think if we recognize that technological systems simply embed existing biases and make them harder to recognize and harder to change, well, maybe actually we're better off having systems that are not fully autonomous. Maybe we're better off not turning everything into a computer system. Like maybe we're better off keeping some of our social systems as human in the loop systems. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, it's worked perfectly well for thousands of years. I am so glad you said that because I, as a avowed Luddite, I very much believe that humans do everything better. I feel more comfortable when there is human, there is a human part of the chain. I mean, I'm not really anti-technology by any stretch of the imagination, but I don't believe, as I love your this term techno-chauvinism, I don't believe that technology or that computers are better than humans. I think we always need humans to be able to push the fail switch, right? Exactly. I mean, who else is going to push it? Exactly. So, and, you know, it's it's an abundant world out there. Like, we can have both. We can have a human system and we can have a computational system and we can build systems that include humans as integral parts of the systems. Doing something with a computer is not better than having a human do something. Let's think about just doing the right thing. Ultimately, a computer, it literally computes. Everything a computer does comes down to math. And it's beautiful elegant, incredible math, but it's just math. And there are lots of things in the world that can't be explained with math. That's so helpful. And I love I love you, Meredith, because you're always able to break down what seems to be very complex technological concepts into that simple idea that computers are just math. They're just computing and there's no way computation can explain um, human relationships. Um, Mm -hmm. It can't explain bias. It cannot explain attraction or any of the other things that make human beings blissfully human, right? And I think it's just really wonderful that you've written this book, that, you know, some of these other women are doing poetry around code and writing other books and talking about this because we don't know what we don't know. And I think at the end of the day, we all need to just educate ourselves to understand what technology is, what technology isn't, and who's actually creating the technology because whoever's creating it is going to put their imprint on it. And hopefully we will put our voices in the mix when technology is being built or we'll put our voices out there in protest when we recognize that that actually is racist technology. Thank you so much for joining us today on The Melting Pot, Meredith Broussard. Thank you. It was great being here.
And tell everybody, um, I know your book, um, it's in hardcover right now, but it's coming out in paperback pretty soon. Yes, in March. Artificial Unintelligence will be out in paperback. So I'll be... uh I'll be uh, talking to folks about the book a little bit more uh, between now and then. We have a link for the book on the website on myamericanmeltingpot.com. People can find it there. And do you have a website, Meredith, where people can read more about your work? Sure. My website is meredithbroussard.com. Excellent. Thanks again for being here. Thank you. That was a really interesting conversation. I learned a lot about racist technology. I guess I never really thought about how technology is actually created. I didn't really think about the fact that technology is simply a manifestation of the people who are putting it together. I was heartened, though, by Meredith's suggestions that if we all educate ourselves and pay attention to you know, who's making technology, if we use our voices to speak up, that we can make a difference, we can point out the flaws. And ultimately, I think her message of saying that technology is not always better than humans and that we don't need to live in an either-or society, that we can have the computers, but we should also have the humans right alongside them. I know my world would not be the same without some of the technology in it, but I also know I would never want to substitute technology for human interaction. And I know definitely that I want my world to be as colorful as it can be, and I want my technology to be that way as well. If you want to read more about racist technology or about Meredith Broussard, you can visit myamericanmeltingpot.com and search racist technology. On the website, you'll find a summary of today's conversation, a link to Meredith's book, Artificial Unintelligence, and other useful links mentioned in this episode. Thanks so much for listening to the My American Melting Pot podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also leave me a message on the blog or find me on social media. Now, if you like what you heard, be sure to come back in two weeks to download episode three when we're going to be talking about the phenomenon that is K-pop. Even better, you should just subscribe to the podcast so each new episode will be automatically downloaded for you. It's like magic. This episode was recorded at WRTI Studios in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where they don't use racist technology, but they do have a piano that plays all by itself. Our producer and editor on the show is Brad Linder. Our sound engineer is Joe Patty. Our theme music was composed by Sumi Tanoka, and our communications intern is Darian Muka. Thank you for listening to My American Melting Pot. <laughs>